Welcome to Slight Reliability. Learning SRE one day at a time. I'm Stephen Townsend. Hello and welcome back to Slight Reliability. I'm Stephen Townsend and this is the show where we learn SRE one day at a time. Today we're talking about the book Team Topologies written by Michael Skelton and Manuel Baez. It's quite recent, it came out in 2019 and it was recommended to me by my manager Stephen Gill and I think it's one of the better books that I've read related to technology work. I think it has a glaringly consistent perspective about how to deliver and operate in the digital age. Uh, alongside other books I've enjoyed such as The Toyota Way, Sooner Safer Happier, The Phoenix Project. And like the Toyota way, there's a big focus on improving flow or the flow of work to deliver value to customers. And in order to achieve that, we need team structures and cultures that support that goal. So today I want to introduce the four different team types introduced in the book and the three different ways in which teams interact. And then after that, I would like to share some of the points that I found particularly interesting or relevant to the work of an SRE. So starting with the types of team, the first team is the stream aligned team. Now most teams in an organization, especially a technology organization, are stream aligned. So think of the traditional product team, delivery team, but with the operations in as well. They own end-to-end -end responsibility for a part of the value stream. In other words, a service. Ideally, these teams can deliver work via an API or some mechanism, which means that it's hands-off. They don't need any other teams to complete the work. In other words, they can deliver and operate independently, and that's key. So they have a lot of autonomy and independence to deliver around the particular value stream or part of the problem that they are responsible for. So that's the vision for a stream-aligned team. I don't think I've ever actually seen it as I've just explained it. There are always dependencies on other teams to deliver a service. And, well, it's a shame. I think in the modern era, it's not about being good at delivering. It's actually about being good at taking a complex problem and breaking it up into small individual problems which can be solved by a single team independently and that's the real challenge so i would love to hear from someone from an organization who's done that and who has worked in a team who had pretty much complete autonomy to build and update and operate and maintain a, a service or a part of a value stream I'd love to hear that perspective and how that went and whether it is as good as it sounds when I read it and when I say it back to myself. All right, the second kind of team is called a complex subsystem team. So if a streamline team delivers a service end-to-end, -end, that might involve multiple different components, but sometimes those components are just so complex that it is too much uh, cognitive load for a streamlined team to manage that as well as all the other bits of their service. And in that case, you have a dedicated team to look after that component. And that's what the complex subsystem team is. So it helps reduce the cognitive load on streamlined teams. Ideally, we want to keep the number of these teams down as low as possible. 
They are a little bit of an anti-pattern, but they are a necessary evil at times. I was trying to think of examples of a complex subsystem team and when it might be needed. I work in the insurance industry at the moment and I could imagine a complex subsystem team who maybe look after a specific component related to insurance underwriting, for example, because that is a very complex business domain. Or maybe I have read as an example of an APM or application performance monitoring team, but that doesn't sound like to me what a complex subsystem team should be. That sounds more like a platform team which leads us nicely into the next team. The third type of team is called the platform team. And these are teams who run the underlying infrastructure and tooling that streamlined teams run their services on. For example, a team who runs a Kubernetes platform, which many streamlined teams host their services on. So their goal ideally is to make it so streamlined teams can be as autonomous as possible by making the services that they provide, the platform services, as easy and reliable as is humanly possible, ideally to make them self-service. The fourth kind of team is an enablement team, and this is the kind of team I've been working in for the past year within the SRE context. Enablement teams exist to support streamlined teams, to help take some of the cognitive load off streamlined teams to do experimentation with new tools, new ways of working. They also work to educate and enable streamlined teams as much as possible. They can take time to understand how streamlined teams work and operate to identify their pain points and understand them better to help help them more and to engage temporarily alongside streamlined teams in full collaboration mode, which brings us nicely into the next thing I wanted to discuss, which is we have these four different team types, uh, which are patterns that we can use, but how do they interact? And according to the book, there's actually just three ways in which teams can or should interact. The first is facilitation. So this is where one team helps and mentors another team. So it's like collaboration, which we'll talk about next but it's a focus on one particular team with another team in support. So this is the form of communication that we probably did the most in our SRE enablement team. For example, the SLO definition workshops we built and ran, value stream mapping, value proposition canvas workshops. It's one of the key ways in which we interacted with the other streamlined teams or platform teams at IAG. The second type of interaction is collaboration. So this is when two teams work together for a defined period of time to discover new things. It could be APIs, practices, technologies, but collaboration has a heavy communication overhead. So it shouldn't be a long running thing. It takes a lot of time and focus from both teams to collaborate effectively. And I think that's an interesting thing I learned from the book is that more collaboration isn't always a good thing. Sometimes it can just be an overwhelming flood of information flying around the place, which detracts from the focus. And sometimes being very deliberate in how two teams communicate is very important and can be very productive. So in terms of collaboration, 
we worked with a Kubernetes platform team for a while and we did a hackathon with them to explore a new monitoring solution for their platform. So I would consider that collaboration mode interaction. The third type of interaction is called X as a service. So that's when one team provides a service that another team can consume, ideally without any dependency or collaboration required. For example, in our team, we are building this Grafana central observability, sort of first pane of glass product. We've stood it up. We are aiming for that to be completely self-service and automated as much as possible. We're not quite there yet. There's still some manual intervention required and some discussion with other teams because we need to flesh out our documentation, but that's the goal. We want Grafana Central to be observability as a service. I did want to point out that this talk of platform teams and X as a service, I think it has some relevance to that concept of platform engineering, which is a very popular buzzword at the moment on social media. Uh, so maybe we'll talk about that in particular in another episode. So those are the four types of teams and the three different ways in which they can interact. Now, what did I personally take away from the book? There are a few concepts that really stood out. The first one is cognitive load, both from an individual perspective and a team perspective. So whether you're an individual or you're a team, there is only so much that you can hold in your mind or your minds and anything beyond that begins to have take a toll on you. Your productivity goes down, your stress goes up, your quality of what you deliver and operate goes down as well. So a big focus in the book is about keeping the scope of the team's work to something manageable, making sure there's some space for innovation and improvement as well. So how can we optimize teams for cognitive load? And if we don't do this, it leads to, like I said, lower quality work, delays, unmotivated people or burned out engineers. The insinuation is from the book that many teams today are not optimized for cognitive load and are either taking on too much or too much is being imposed upon them. Now, as I've already mentioned, I think the key to having reasonable levels of cognitive load happens at an organizational level. It's about saying these are the problems we're trying to solve with technology and being able to break those big, complex problems into small, manageable ones. So microservices, for example, they're not a technological advancement, really. They're actually the manifestation of breaking up complex problems into smaller ones, which can be run by a single team. And that leads nicely into the next thing I wanted to discuss. Conway's law is something I've been reading a lot about and I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on the podcast yet or not, but the idea behind it is that the technology architecture of an organization is closely aligned with the structure of the teams who build and operate it and vice versa. So there's two sides to that. If you want your teams to have manageable cognitive load to be able to independently build and operate without external dependencies, you need to architect your technology solutions to support that, such as decouple components, microservices, versioned APIs, instead of monolithic applications with external dependencies. On the other side, if you want to build a more modern and manageable architecture, then it helps to structure your teams in a way that mirrors that. Form teams who own and operate discrete areas of the business, parts of value streams. Give them autonomy to implement the solution that works best for that team. 
and you will more than likely end up with decoupled architecture. I love Conway's law. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I'd love to do a dedicated episode, maybe even interview someone about Conway's law and how they've experienced it in the real world. The third concept that really interested me is Dunbar's number. So the book has this idea that the ideal team size should be between six and nine people and definitely no more than 15. Beyond that, a team is no longer able to function effectively. So this is really interesting. Uh, It's based on this idea of Dunbar's number, which is actually that a human being can only keep around about 150 social relationships. Beyond that, it's just not possible to keep up with it all. And so it's based on that idea, but brought down to a single team and how that operates. And having teams of no more than 15 people and ideally six to nine, it counters the flat management structures that many organizations have. So they attempt to implement flat structures to reduce the distance between leaders and people implementing on the ground. But there's a side effect. And the side effect is you might have really big teams who are disconnected and not functioning effectively. It's completely anecdotal, but I'm currently in a team of five people, which is actually a little small. We'd like to have a few more, but I think having the five people has been pretty effective. We're able to have a relationship with everyone else on the team. We're small enough that we can check in and we can sort of almost predict each other's behaviors and it's working quite well. But I've also been in teams of 20 or more people. And I can say from my experience, that was incredibly ineffective. And it was almost like we had different parts of the team who were their own mini teams uh, working in isolation. So we weren't really a team at all. It was just a manager split between multiple different teams, which isn't necessarily fair on the manager. Another concept is long-lived teams, which is in step with the messaging from Sooner, Safer, Happier, one of my favorite books. It takes about two to three months for a group of people to become cohesive. Obviously, if you keep shifting things around all the time, there is a huge cost another two or three months to get teams working effectively again. So ideally, you want to keep teams of people together for long periods of time. Teams who stay together are more productive. They have higher trust. They're able to build a level of maturity you otherwise wouldn't be able to. However, long-lived teams doesn't mean they're static. Individuals can come in and out of them, but the overall team stays together for a long period of time, although that team may work on very different things over time as well. This, of course, goes completely against the model of having a project or a program or initiative, and you pull together people for this particular project, and when it's done, they all scatter and go their own ways to different teams. Uh, And I think this, once again, supports the idea that an OPEX or operational expenditure funding model is the way to go. When you do capital expenditure, you tend to lead toward running projects and forming temporary teams. So that's going to work against you in the long run. Okay, to wrap up, a few points from the book. All charts are always out of step with reality. We need something which is more dynamic and team topologies is one way that we can achieve that. Also, the formal titles that people have in their job, it describes the visible and known work that they do. It doesn't describe the more holistic nature of the day-to-day work of all people who work in the digital era. And also these informal connections between people that we don't acknowledge or necessarily understand or we don't even see are happening 
are probably more valuable to an organization than the formal ones which we know about and say should happen. I would say for an SRE, it makes sense to me that SRE should probably be embedded in streamlined teams. That to me seems the most effective because when you're in a streamlined team, you understand the work that that team is doing, the technology, the business, the customer, you know that team and how that team works with their culture as well. And you can probably most effectively implement SRE goodness from within that team. It's been challenging in an enablement team to have a real impact in the world of SRE because we're always somewhat separate from streamlined teams. We can go in and embed and build trust over time, but that takes time. And it also means that streamlined teams need to be given space, funding and priority to improve their reliability, to improve their operations. And if that isn't happening, it's very hard as an enablement team to come in and make a real difference. So that's Team Topologies. I have really skimmed the surface here. I don't think I've done it justice. It's a very good book. I learned a lot, especially if you are a manager in a technology organization, I'd highly recommend reading it. And if you're an SRE trying to implement SRE culture or change an organization, I think it's a great book for that as well. That's all from another episode of Slight Reliability. I'll be back next week with a bit of an announcement. So I'm looking forward to that one. So until then, see you next time.